1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 82 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Redis, along with my co-host, the Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Thomas Pageler, who will be joining us later on in the episode. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or result to my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at a very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So, again, to check out our recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, what a great show we had last week with Ed Sim, the co-founder and managing partner of Bold Start Ventures. Right here in the center of the universe, in the heart of the Big Apple, hearing him talk about the advantages of being in New York City and, and doing what he does uh, very, very well was just you know very interesting to me. I'm a big New York guy, right? I love the city and I love the energy. I just love the opportunity here. Everything is here, right? And um, he talked about the advantages, or spoke about the advantages of, of, of being a of venture capitalist in New York City. Uh, and I think a lot of people uh, really going to find that fascinating. Ed, Ed, Ed being Right here uh, in town to talk about how he applies a first check for enterprise technology entrepreneurs, which is the specific process he goes through when evaluating a potential security investment. He was explaining to us that was just totally awesome. And the response to the last week's show tells me we need to do more of this kind of stuff, right? We need to do more episodes on this very topic. So, Ed is one of the savviest dudes out there in the VC world. I'm very proud to have been able to have him on our show and to add him to our tier one guest list. We spoke about how Ed identifies pain in a new startup and what's hot in the cybersecurity VC market right now. And Ed also gave his opinion on whether or not merging technologies being built with security in mind is a problem or it is not a problem. And we kind of went over that. And that's some of the themes of the last couple episodes. We've been talking about that with some of our last guests. We also spoke about some of the basic cybersecurity threats and concepts that companies should be worried about today, and if smaller companies are at a disadvantage relative to bigger companies in terms of rolling out mature, mature uh, cybersecurity products and services. So, the big question, the big question, and, and the and sort of the theme of the show, in a lot of respects, is you know, is is the cybersecurity industry in a bubble, right? And uh, we had some very interesting comments. Uh, from Ed on that subject. Uh, so, it, it, yeah, I, it, I'm not going to <laughs> make you listen to the show, right? If you missed last week's show, don't fret it, right? You can go on anytime, any time, any place, and about 11 different playback mediums right now. It's just you, know, you can just Google it and just go to tf7radio.com and get all your episodes. So you get all this and much, much more with special guest Ed Sim, the founder and managing partner of Bold Star Ventures. on last week's episode. That's episode number 81 of Task Force 7 Radio. So, we were reminded why our episode with one of the most sought after cybersecurity executive recruiters in the world, Mr. Matt Comins of Caldwell Partners, got such a huge response as one of the most listened to episodes in TF7 Radio history, and that's because people really want to know how to get a cybersecurity job. They wanna know how to make some money and provide for their families, right? So, getting to listen to one of the most sought after talent professionals in the industry doesn't come on around too often, unless, of course, you're a subscriber to TF7 Radio. So that's why we posted episode number 51 with Matt as the April 2019 Encore episode right after episode number 81 in the TF7 Library, because people who haven't heard it yet, and to be honest with you, people who have actually heard it already and just said, Eck, you know, I'm going to listen to it again, tuned in to learn how cybersecurity executives can differentiate themselves when competing for senior positions. We also spoke about how much time executives should spend searching for a job opportunity internally versus externally, and how they can create more opportunities for themselves during a time when the talent crisis is just raging on, right? It's not taking a break. It's just just nonstop chaos out there, it seems. And we also spoke to Coleman's on how executives should work with recruiters and what are the best recruiting and retention practices employers should follow to win the talent over. And I don't know if. You know, more employers need to pay attention to this, I think, because I think there's a lot of people failing in that specific area right there. You know, I know, uh, look, I think a lot, in a lot of respects, the CISO seems to be more and more to be the fall person in a thankless job. And even, in, in, even some of these, you know, CISOs are telling me on the side, hey, look, I think the CISO position might be a dead-end spot. You know, I don't know if it's a dead-end job or not. Um, I know they're getting a raw deal, I think, in a lot of different respects, but I know several CISOs who are sort of smarting from their careers right now and how their experiences as a CISO has had a negative effect on them, both personally and professionally, it seems to me. So I think what Matt had to say makes a lot of sense. We're probably going to broach this subject a lot more in the coming episodes, so make sure you don't miss Matt Comins of Caldwell Partners on the April 2019 Encore episode. That's episode number 51 of Task Force 7 Radio. You'll be glad you did. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you a link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Well, just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the home page, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. We're on 11 different playback mediums now. people usually have preferences on which ones they like. And we made it easy for you to find all the playback mediums on Task Force 7. So just hit the subscribe button at the top of the page. Take you right there. And most importantly, you can subscribe to the show right from the TF7 radio website, which is what we kind of prefer you to do. Uh, This way you don't miss anything. You get notified about all the TF7 extras, the encore episodes, uh, like the ones I just mentioned about with Matt Coman's. Right, and if you're a subscriber, you just get a notification hey, you've got a little encore episode just popped, popped up on the TF7 library, and you get all their uh, Task Force 7 news and events too, and also information on the upcoming TF7 network. So, so check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24 7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So. We have a, another amazing guest for you this evening on TF7 Radio. Ariel Evans is going to be joining us. Ariel is a senior cybersecurity expert, a serial entrepreneur, and a very successful author. She is currently the CEO of Cyber Innovative Technologies, a cyber risk management software company, and the founder of Cyber Intelligence for You. That's an educational cybersecurity company. We're going to talk a little bit about that later on. As well, she's won numerous awards, including the EU Commission Award for Innovation in Cyber Risk and Gartner Cool Vendor in Privacy Management. And most recently, Ariel is the author of *Managing Cyber Risk*, published by Routledge Press in April of 2019. So the book's just coming out. Uh, I got a chance to preview the book. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but in the preview and, and stuff that I was able to skip, to, I mean the, the book looks amazing. It's getting you know a lot of great reviews from people that I know in the inner circle here that have um, had a chance to read the book. Um, It's based on her three years of research with the Fortune 1000 and cyber uh, insurance industries. And over 200 interviews were done identifying gaps in company maturity and cyber risk compared with over 15 company metrics. So very, very interesting. A lot of research and work went into this. The result is what Ariel defines as the digital asset approach. And that's over 85% of a business now in digital form compared to 10% in 2001. That means 85% of a business's value is digital. We're going to talk about this. The book provides the basis to measure digital asset risk with the use cases for measuring cyber resilience, cyber insurance needs, M&A risk quantification, and resource and budgeting needs and metrics that boards and directors can understand. So Ariel has an undergraduate degree in nuclear physics, and she has an MBA from New York University's Stern School of Business. She currently sits on the board as a cyber expert for Rutgers University and is also the faculty chairperson for Rutgers University's Executive Cybersecurity Program, and she's a lecturer, guest lecturer, at Tel Aviv University, NYU, and Hebrew University. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very excited to welcome Mrs. Ariel Evans to this show. Ariel, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, look, you've had a fascinating career. I mean, you seem to be everywhere, and now you have this great new book out. How did you get interested in in cyber risk to begin with?
2: Well, I came out of um, compliance and risk on Wall Street about 15 years ago, realizing that there was a huge gap between what the business understood in cybersecurity and the risk that they really had. So I started doing research um, after I had a stint as a CISO at a telco, and decided that there was, you know, a real big gap here that needed to be explored, and so I went and talked to all the Fortune 1000s and the cyber insurance companies to understand what did they think it was, and, um, you know, I was fascinated by it because the business is mystified by cyber. It's uh, something that, you know, it's like the boogeyman, ooh, cyber, and it's like it's not that scary if you really understand it, but the question is how many people really truly take the time to understand it. So that's uh, somewhat how I became involved in it.
1: So that's interesting, right, because I do get that, you know, sort of 10-mile stare from people when you start (laughs) talking about cyber if they're not really in the business, right? And so um, I think that's rather common. But let's start talk about your new book for a minute, too. I mean, uh, what what were some of the key findings in your research to doing the book?
2: Yeah, I call that the deer-in-the-headlights stare because it's like they're just terrified. <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, the book really, um, one of the key things that we found was cyber is really a business issue. And um, that's because the board is the risk owner. And we saw last year Ann announced that um, cyber events are now among the top three triggers for DNO derivative actions, meaning that the directors and officers are personally liable for cyber events. And that became somewhat of a game changer. And then we saw GDPR get en- enacted in the EU, and privacy data is now Sancrasoft, and everyone's like, wow. Um, but what's really, I think, really the key thing that businesses need to know is that 85% of their business is a digital asset. So that means 85% of their business value is digital. And Gartner's been talking a lot about digitization lately, how you need to align digital assets to the M&A piece, as well as the risk, which is good. People are finally starting to get that. Um, but what I thought was really interesting in the research was the, I did a maturity model based upon um, how um, cyber resilient were companies. How well could they... Um, Be breached because we run on an assumption of breach model today where it's not, oh, I haven't been breached. No, it's you have been breached and you will be breached again. Um, And everyone teaches that model. Every university teaches that model. And so when we look at the maturities of the organizations, they're all over the place. It's like we have some amazingly pervasive, super mature organizations that are really on top of it and are making it an enterprise risk initiative. And then we have folks that are still in, you know, firewalls and servers and closets. So it's like we've got a really big disparity in maturity, um, and it's pervasive around um, different organizations and how they look at it. So um, the other key finding was um, that this is only going to get worse (laughs) because we are living in an age of interconnectivity and innovation where everyone's now a fintech, a teltech, an insurtech. And what is this? This is taking innovation technologies, which are digital assets, and making solutions out of them. So we see iOt. Um, we had that huge ma Wong issue about a year and a half ago, which was considered one of the worst cyber breaches. Uh, we have middleware that connects our um, the federal banks with the, with the um with the um, acquiring banks. We have regulation now where. We're seeing each of the states enacting privacy laws, California, South Carolina. Right now in New Jersey, there's three bills in session that they're debating, which one's going to, you know, get put into law. And everyone's outsourcing. Um, We see only 40% of companies now on-premise. And that's only going to get worse because everyone is putting things in the cloud and they're all outsourcing to service vendors because they, Save a lot of money on benefits, pensions, and things like that that they no longer want to pay employees. So um, take that, and it's a perfect storm, basically.
1: So, you know, are you having, are you seeing that people are having trouble securing the digital transformation of their companies as the company evolves and matures?
2: I think that companies can't keep up with the hmm. understanding of as you continue to transform into more of a digital organization, that that means that your risk has exponentially grown. And because you've been using point solutions to try and have a cybersecurity program, you've only been looking at the tool side of it. As an example, we're 2 million resources short in the U.S. alone in terms of skilled cybersecurity professionals, the SOC analysts, these forensics folks. And it's the divide is going to be 3.5 million in another year and a half. It is growing so large because companies are finally realizing that they're not spending enough on cyber with the people part of it because cyber is people processing tools so what the digital asset thing is, is so important to understand is that um if you don't know what your digital assets are it's like any business that doesn't do an inventory goes out of business right if you don't know this st- the, the stock and trade and you don't know how to protect it and secure it you're gonna go out of business, it's either gonna be pilfered or lost in some way, either through bad business decisions or through other means. And cyber's no different. You mentioned you have to inventory those assets and know what they are.
0: You mentioned like a risk-based approach and you said universities are starting to teach, you know, it's not if it's when and it'll happen again and again. So is your Mm -hmm. recommendation kind of more focusing on like a company in, in risk management and just, you know, understanding what is okay to, I guess, you know, not protect as much so you can protect the more, um,
2: that's exactly right Tom you know you can't you can't secure everything you're never going to be 100% secure but what you should be doing is you should be putting resources to mitigate the risk down to more acceptable levels based on the impacts not just eeny meeny miny mo." I think I need to go over here which is what's happening and that lends itself to the cyber budgeting issue that we see where companies are still using percent of IT spend that's that's ludicrous you know, we all know what a budget is. We all know it's fixed in capital um, and operational and variable costs, right? And it's like cyber is the same. And but because cyber has been carved out of IT with the reporting structure going into the CIO, this is also changing, by the way, very slowly. We saw about 7% last year finally shifting to the more enterprise risk. Reporting structure where the CISO was reporting into the CRO or the COO, depending on how they're organized, instead of the CIO, which is a good first step.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And uh, in background for me, I, I've been the CRO, I've been the CISO. Absolutely believe in that model, and I, I absolutely love what you're saying. And I do think that identifying the risk and sometimes the the costs don't have to come from the cyber team. They can they can announce no. under risk. Yeah, they should be
2: coming from the business because yeah. think about it it's like those that are you know the the 800 pound gorillas of the organization making 80% of the revenues no matter what industry you're in those are where the crown jewel assets lie right yeah. so they should be throwing budget money at the cyber team to secure their assets and 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 in in retrospect to all the other business lines they should proportionally be throwing some money at the cyber team. That's my opinion. I don't. I think it should be treated as a separate line of business, not as some one-legged stepchild of IT. Is
1: is the cybersecurity budget as a percentage of the total IT budget not a valid statistic anymore? Not a valid. Well, that's statistic.
2: what most folks are still using, unfortunately. But think about it. Okay, what are your costs in cybersecurity? The fixed costs are the operational costs. Is your team, your CISO, your SOC analyst, your pen tester, your um capital fixed costs are the tool costs, the licensing costs, the SIM, the VMS, whatever, right? And then your variable costs are all the things that happen to you that are unexpected. So they're the findings from security assessments that you need to, you know, fix. They're incidents um, from your SIM system. And then they're vulnerabilities that you may or may not fix depending upon what the impact is from your VMS, right? So um, the idea is, is that it's just like your home budget. You've got a car expense, it's fixed. You've got a mortgage expense, it's fixed. You've got a vacation fund, it's variable, right? Um, Those are the things that it's easy to understand um, what that should look like. And they're not doing that at all because they don't know how to um, look at the variable costs, which is something that's really not that difficult.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the 85% number because that's a really fascinating number. And I guess when we say that 85% of a business's value is digital, how can an organization actually understand what their digital assets even are?
2: That's such a good question. So think about it this way, okay? Um, Your digital assets are systems. They're processes. They're the data that you process and they're the technologies that support that. So as an example, if you're a pharmaceutical company, right, you're creating medications, drugs. You know, okay, so your digital asset is your patent management system, your clinical research trial system, and the processes associated to those are you know, the identification of a possible new drug, um, the discovery phase of that drug, things like that. Um, and then your technologies are vast, and the type of data that you process is is patient-related, so it falls under HIPAA um, and privacy data. Whereas if you're a bank, you're doing financial transactions, wire transfers, loans, things like that, and so your systems are your customer relationship management system that has all of your customers that are paying you, um, your transactional systems that process all of those wire transfers or loans. And the processes associated to those are customer registration, um, you know, wire transfer execution, um, and then a host of technologies, of course, everything from, you know, the most sophisticated to the most mundane. And then the type of data you process is also privacy data, but it's also financially related. And if you're in New York State, you'll come underneath the regulation for the New York State Part 500, which requires a risk assessment. And a risk assessment is not a vulnerability assessment. And I see people getting that confused, not just customers, but also vendors, like saying, well, this is a risk assessment, when they're talking about vulnerabilities. And all the vulnerability is, is a control maturity. It's not risk. Risk is very, very different. So, um, you know, how do you know what they are? You have to inventory them, right? So asset management systems exist, like ServiceNow, our our system, of course, is an asset management system as well, Um, but it's much more than that. Um, BMC and CA have them. Um, And, you know, every single compliance framework that you run into, the first thing it asks you to do is to inventory the assets, whether it's the PCI, ISO, it doesn't matter. They're all asking you, what is your topology, where are your systems, what network do they sit on, Um, how do they look, right? What are the processes? Um, So that's really, really important to know. And most companies are woefully unprepared for that because they've been on an acquisition spree for the last 20 years and they're just gobbling up whatever they can and they're not bothering to inventory as they gobble. (laughs) So it's like, okay, so what does that look like? It looks like a colossal bunch of information that they need to get.
1: so, so I think, you know, in, in, in the process that you're talking about here, I think organizational change is a, is a huge piece of this. And I think that transformation and change is often the greatest challenge in, in this type of space in any security space and even law enforcement. Um, there, organizational change was always very difficult. And I don't think in the security space, it's really much different. Organizationally, what do you think companies need to change to increase their ability to manage cyber risk more effectively?
2: I would say first is the, the governance structure of the organization, the reporting structure, to make sure that the roles and responsibilities are clearly defined and they're correct. Um, you know, um, making sure they have a single person of accountability for their cybersecurity program is key, um, whether that is a security manager if they're an SME or a CISO if they're more of a mature company. Um that to me is the first step because without the top down, the tone at the top has to be set that cyber is a culture. And if you think of cyber as, an, as a revolution, so remember the industrial revolution, the internet revolution, like all the revolutions that we've had in society, cyber is no different. So companies were in the beginning of the cyber revolution, even though firewalls have been around since the early nineties. Um, we, we have, A long way to go in terms of what cyber really looks like. Um, So understanding where you are in the maturity spectrum, I think, is key to knowing, well, what's your next right thing to do? So the first thing I would say is organizational structure correct, governance structure correct, but then understanding and doing an analysis of where are you from a maturity model and One of the things we did in the research was we made a wonderful maturity model that we actually teach to our customers and they love it because it just gives them a sense of what do I, what should I do next? Like more immature companies start with compliance because they're forced to, right? Which is okay and that's fine. But then as you mature, you're getting more of a risk mindset and then there's a whole slew of other parts of your cyber program that sync up with that, your tools, your people, your process, your reporting structures. Um, Are you incident response focused? Are you audit focused? Um, And it's very interesting because the customer gets a perspective of where they align to their peers, as well as where do they want to be in five years.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, so from a a, a cyber risk context, right? Strictly Mm -hmm. speaking, how are these, digital assets used typically in an organization?
2: It can depend. Like um, a, you know, a company that's doing roughly around $4 billion a year, you know, um, in terms of size, it depends by industry. Um, the financial services industry obviously has the most number of assets um, because they've been the most digitized for years. Then you'll see the insurance and the telcos and the manufacturers and the retailers, right? So um, it varies, but typically... Um, you know, like a $4 billion year company is probably going to have around 800 to a thousand digital assets with about, I'd say five to 7% of them are crown jewels, meaning the most, like if something happened to that asset, the business could possibly go belly up and not be sustainable because we'll look at Equifax as an example. It's a company that should have definitely been censured a lot more than they were. Um, frankly, I'm personally very, not happy about what happened with them you know what didn't they understand that they were in the trust business what what were they trusted with the privacy data the crown jewels the customer privacy information and their credit scores what didn't they do they didn't even have the most basic of security programs in place to patch things um, appropriately so if you're looking at like you know where do you start in this whole thing? It's really understanding like a couple key things like, you know, what business are you in? What are your crown jewel assets? If something goes bad there, what could happen to you? I mean, they lost 25% of their stock price and they've never recovered. And I don't think they ever will. Um, So that's very interesting because that's what we call a reputational amplifier um, where you're a public company and, you know, people start dropping you like a bad Um, date.
1: Right. Yeah. It's very interesting. In your book, you define these five levels of organizational maturity in mm-hmm. this in this change process, right? So you go through this sort of life cycle of change. And can you tell us a little bit about them and why do you think they're so important?
2: Because I think you have to benchmark where you are. Like, in order to get a, a, a company that's cyber resilient, you have to have a strategy. And in order to have a strategy, you have to know where you are today and where you want to be. Um, when I used to date people, when I was single, I used to say, where do you want to be in five years? And about 90% of them ran away and 10% stayed. Um, But it's like, (laughs) that's the question. It's like, are you really, you as the board of directors, your duty is to protect the assets of the business, the fiduciary duty. And as such, how are you doing that? So when you look at these five levels of maturity, you can get a feeling of, where you should be based upon your industry, your geography, your your compliance initiatives, um, how big you are, um, the way that your program, your people, process, and tools are in place, what kind of tools you have, what kind of process you have, and it gives the... company a perspective to say, okay, well, we're on a scale of zero to five, we're a 2.2, but most folks in our industry are 3.2. What do we need to do to get there? You know, because we're competing against these people. And if you think about like the buying and selling aspect of, you know, how do companies grow, right? They put money into innovation and initiatives, or they go out and acquire or both, right? And so like, if you're going to be acquired, or you're going to acquire, you have to look at the risk of what you're acquiring or the risk of what you have if you want to be acquired because we see over and over and over again companies like um, Verizon, Yahoo, right? Breach, 10% of the purchase price went away and that wasn't even with any real understanding of what the risk was. That was just, let's just finish the deal. And then FedEx TNT was basically a $4.8 billion loss because they're still doing things on paper. Um, and we see that over and over and over again. So if you're going to acquire someone, you're, you're acquiring both the assets and the liabilities, right? So you have to understand what that liability is, especially if, say you're only acquiring certain assets of the business, what, are, what is the cyber liability of those assets and do they align to your um, cybersecurity posture? Or will you have to spend a lot of money to get them to raise the bar to align to you? So there's a lot of um, really interesting conversations that can be happening with organizations when they start to talk about cyber
1: risk. So this is really great stuff, Ariel. We're going to continue the conversation right here after the break. I've got to transition into the commercial break right now. So just stick with me. Mm -hmm. If you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. That's right, folks. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be immediately connected to the TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at TF7. That's with the number 7, radio.com. So I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force Seven. I'm excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much needed and much awaited for network. We're gonna solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. Wherever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force Seven Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, Consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at RecordedFuture.com forward slash Task Force 7. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization. And the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet. S I N E T.
0: Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com.
1: We're back with our special guest, the CEO of Cyber Innovative Technologies, Mrs. Ariel Evans. So, Ariel, let's get specific. I mean, we talk a lot about cyber resiliency in this space because resiliency is really absolutely necessary for success. And we talk about digital transformation and the resiliency that has to be incorporated into that transformation. What is and how do you define cyber resiliency?
2: So what we're looking at is the ability of the company to continuously deliver the intended outcome in spite of an adverse cyber event. And it's really used to benchmark and define the organizational goals in terms of cybersecurity. So um, one of the ways to look at it is um, there's two levels of risk that we can measure. One is inherent. Um, That's the risk without controls. And that's used in a number of different use cases with digital assets, such as Quantifying how much cyber insurance a company should buy because you want to use the worst-case scenario, which is what inherent is. It's also what I call cybergeddon risk. In other words, it would be as if you had 0% effectiveness of the controls, the cybersecurity controls as well. And then you have residual risk, which is the risk with the controls. In other words, how effective are those cybersecurity tools? How effective is that firewall? They lose their effectiveness every 50% 50% every 2 years if they're not tuned it's the same with all cybersecurity tools they have to be maintained like a car so what you're looking at is this ebb and flow of information that you can actually utilize when something happens in your organization that impacts your digital assets not only from the perspective of what should we do and how should we do it and, and what kind of risk that looks like but also looking at the effectiveness of do we have the right tools? Are they effective enough? Should we buy another tool? So these are the kind of conversations that can have around cyber resiliency. Um, You can also look at how much cyber insurance you should actually buy. This is a big thing we do with companies. It's actually usually the first part of the engagement that folks use our product for. And what they're asking is, um, you know, the broker says that they should buy this, but they don't think it's right or the broker tells them that they don't know how much they should buy, which is really happening more and more often because what they do is they say, well, if you guys are both banks and you're both on Wall Street and you both have 5,000 employees and $40 billion in revenue, we'll sell you the same policy at the same price. And that's doesn't make any sense at all. We don't do this in property and casualty insurance. We don't do this in flood insurance. We don't do this in any other kind of insurance vector but cyber because they don't know how much insurance the company really should have. And it's really based upon the way they pay the claim. And so when you look at the digital asset approach, what you can do is you can quantify. So the financial exposure now we're talking about, not the risk score, you can quantify based on how they actually pay the claim, which is data exfiltration. What that is, is a fancy way of saying cyber criminals stole your data. An example of that is you click on a phishing email and malware gets inserted, and then all of a sudden your data is being stolen and you know, sold on the deep and the dark web. That's data exfiltration. That's based on the number of records that your system, which is a digital asset, processes. The other thing they pay for is business interruption. What's that? Well, that's when you can't complete the transaction. It's a process-related metric. An example of that would be um, you want to buy me a Mother's Day gift at Macy's and you go on the Macy's website to buy me the gift and an attacker floods their um, web application server with traffic and the website gets shut down and you can't buy me the gift. That is something that cyber insurance companies will also pay for based on the, the revenue lost um, per um, what they call the denial of service attack, which is what that is. And that's usually a 48 hour life cycle, Um, times the amount of revenue that's lost for that process. And the other thing they sometimes pay for, and it depends on how the policy is written, is regulatory loss. We saw um, Google was fined 48 million euro um, about three months ago by the EU. Um, We're starting to have all these new privacy laws. We have some laws with teeth. HIPAA is pretty um, well enforced by Health and Human Services. New York State Part 500 looks like it's going to be enforced well. So we're going to see a lot more companies having to pay fines that are associated with cyber breaches. And so if you don't understand how much you really should buy, then you're going to be like Target who had a $100 million policy and now has over a billion dollars worth of loss, which is more the norm than not. They're woefully underinsured and they don't know how much to insure themselves for. Yeah,
1: I mean, we just had a huge episode on on cyber insurance and how to you know, calculate cyber risk and how that's all done and there's only a you know a, a few tools out there that I know of that actually help organizations do that and determine how much insurance they actually need but why do we why do we actually why do, why take a digital asset approach to cyber resiliency i mean what's the What are the advantages in in your mind of doing it this way?
2: Well, if 85% of your business is a digital asset, then this is what we call the inside inside view. It is the inside view of your organization. When other companies look at cyber risk scoring, they don't quantify, first of all, because they can't because they're not looking at the number of records and they're not looking at the process exposure they 're only looking at the outside part they 're scraping the deep in the dark web and they 're looking at spam propagation, botnets and executive reconnaissance, which is useful information don 't get me wrong but it 's only about it 's useful only in the context that it 's happening on the outside. You need to know what 's happening inside because once you have that information, then you can start to have the strategy of how much insurance, how much budget. What are the how effective are the tools? What does the MA strategy look like? Is it working or not? And then the vendors, because the vendors are touching those digital assets. So it's not enough just to score the vendors on the outside and say, you know, this is what they look like, in my opinion. You've got to get inside and look at, okay, McKinsey is implementing SAP. Which digital assets are they touching? Well they're touching SAP, they're touching the inputs to SAP, the outputs to SAP, and probably some of the communication software in the organization like SharePoint and the email system and maybe the project um, time tracking and resource management systems, right? So that's where the risk is. It's in what they touch because it's where that's where something could go wrong. And that's why you want to have an understanding. And that also begs the question of how much insurance should the vendor have? And I'll give you an example, a personal example of this, where our latest customer um, asked us to have $10 million of cyber insurance, which is a lot. And we pushed back and said, listen, we're not inside your firewall, and we're not touching your digital assets. And we explained what we were doing, and they came back and said a million was sufficient. So this is a huge issue. Like $1 million of cyber insurance cost me about $5,000, uh, $10 million of cyber insurance will cost me between thirty and $40,000, it's a big difference. So. That's the kind of things we need to be aware of that we're not getting clarity on. And the other thing is how much cloud risk do you have? Digital asset will show you how much cloud risk you have, how much IoT risk you have, whereas deep, dark web scrapes or any kind of risk analysis using FAIR, which is called um, factor analysis information risk, um, only looks at vulnerabilities. It doesn't look at the digital asset and it doesn't look at the inherent risk at all. And that doesn't give you... The whole holistic way of looking at the strategy and seeing what you should be doing,
1: so where does the rubber meet the road here? How can a company become more cyber resilient?
2: Have an effective strategy. make sure you have the right organizational structure, make sure you have the right budget. Know what your tool RIs are. Know how your resource management is effective or not. Um, know how much cyber insurance you need, know how much vendor risk you have and how you can mitigate that down to more acceptable levels. Vendors represent 63% of reported, and I use that word because a lot of companies don't report, reported cyber breaches. And that's a big number. And there's a lot of visibility out there about vendors. And if you look at You know, a lot of folks, when they do their digital asset inventory with us, they say, Well, we're facilities and, you know, we don't really have digital assets. And I'm like, Well, do you have HVAC vendors? And they're like, Yeah. I said, Did you know that Target was reached because of an HVAC vendor? And they're like, Oh. Like, they they finally start to understand that it's not just about, you know, the IT people and the IT assets, it's about all the assets in the business and how people are getting access to those assets, which is Part of what we're measuring when we do um, any of the – we actually integrate in with the compliance framework so you can see, like, from um, a control perspective how well the control is in place. Is it partially in place, is it fully in place, or is it not in place at all? Usually it's partially in place to some degree, and so we want to see, like, how effective the control is so we can go back and make a, re- a recommendation to the customer about making the control tighter, right? Like. And usually that kind of stuff doesn't cost a lot of money for them um, because they've already got something in place. All they need to do is pivot a little bit on what they're doing to make it more effective. So that's a good thing for the customer. Um,
1: So financial planning, I think, in cybersecurity is something uh, a lot of uh, folks struggle with at times because of the flexibility, I think, that you need in this business. And you need to be very agile as the year goes on. Planning for a whole year ahead in cybersecurity is is really impossible. We think in terms of even hours, at the, you know, in terms of how the things change so fast and how the uh, rest of your business can uh, evolve so quickly. So how do, how do you create a cyber budget that's effective?
2: So that's a good question, George. And I think that um, there is a way to see what it looks like for the year, but you need to be pivoting every quarter. Like you can't just sit around and let a year go by and not reevaluate. So what we suggest folks do is first start with fixed. That's the easiest. Your fixed costs are the operational and capital expenditures, the CISO and the SOC analyst and all those folks, and then the tools, right? That's your capital expense. But when you're looking at variable expense, right, what we recommend you do is we recommend that you take data from at least two years where you've got how many findings did you have from security assessments like your PCI um, assessment or your ISO or your HIPAA or whatever you did? How many findings did you have and how much uh, budget needed to be applied to those? And the budget is both fixed and variable. So the fixed being um, the tool, maybe you had to buy an asset management tool or maybe you had to buy a tool to help you with that particular control to make it more effective and the folks that have to implement that control, right? So um, was it a consulting team? Was it um, an employee team? Whatever. And then look at those over time, but it also include the incidents that you've remediated and the vulnerabilities that you have and have not remediated and what the costs of those would be, and then do an average. And keep updating that average every quarter so that you're getting more and more um, confidence in the data in other words like if you've spent a million dollars last year and you spent um, you know five hundred thousand dollars a year before that then the average is seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars on variable costs but the next quarter look at that again because you might be seeing differences right and then that is a different conversation that you can now have because now you can build the business case to go back to the risk owners the board the directors and say Ladies and gentlemen, you've given us $2 million, right? Our fixed costs last year were 1.75. Our variable costs were um, 1.25. What would you like to do? Would you like to give us more budget? Would you like to accept the risk? Would you like to do um, a combination of the two, right? And now the conversation is off of the CISO, back onto the risk owner saying, here's the facts. Nothing but the facts, ma'am, nothing but the facts. And here's the quantified information that we have. What would you like to do? And it just makes a different conversation because now everyone gets to figure out what do they want to do. And we saw budgets increase. JP Morgan Chase went from 250 to 850 in the last two years in their cyber budget. Brown Brothers Harriman went from five to fifty. We're seeing monumental increases because they know they've got it wrong and they know they've got to put more money against it. But what we're recommending is know how much money that is so that you're not throwing spaghetti up against a wall and trying to get it to stick, right? It's yeah, like I mean, try I think, and be clear,
1: right? Yeah. I think it's a lot how they, de- what did they define in their cybersecurity um, budget as well and what's in that you know pipeline. I think a lot of organizations have a lot of different capability and functions underneath that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that uh, department, and that would actually change the budget significantly. Um, it could, one yes. One of the things that we, that we talk about uh, a lot here is third-party risk, mm-hmm. and vendors represent 63% of the reported data breaches today. So why does this continue to be so high? Why, why are we not understanding what the problem is here, and how come it's not being addressed appropriately?
2: So if you go back to the maturity model, most people aren't addressing vendor risk until about level four, um, where they're starting to bring in um, not only the vendor management team into it, and maybe they're just looking at the contracts, which is a great way to start because one of the things that you have to ensure in the contracts is that their level of security posture is somewhat equal to yours. Um, You know, are they screening employees? Are they doing background checks? Um, especially from, you know, third world countries, right? Where um, location risk is a big deal in cyber. You know, if you've got hotel chains in the Ukraine and in any of the, you know, what I want to call the aggressive cyber nation states, um, your risk is tremendously more. And there was just a breach last week in Ukraine again around this. So outsourcing is both service and product, right? It's looking at... um, I'm bringing in system integration teams or management consultants to help with stuff, and they're touching our digital assets. And I'm buying cloud services, which is really, you know, depending on which level of a cloud services, is it infrastructure as a service, software as a service, platform as a service, has a little bit of a different risk connotation, but those are all outsourced services or product, right? So, you're looking at those things and as companies continue to outsource more and more and more, um, this issue will continue to exponentially grow. And like I said earlier, deep dark web scrapes and FAIR models don't really do this justice. It's really about where is the risk, what are they touching and what can you do to prevent them from you know compromising your system because the third party risk, which is the vendor risk, is inherited by the first party.
1: So one of the things that uh, we also talk about a lot is, is cyber risk metrics and what it really means. And a lot of times I even hate the word metrics and I used to, you know, tell my team all the time that, hey, look, you know, metrics, that's not an exciting word, right? You know, you're on the metrics team. would <laughs> <laughs> ever want to go work for a metrics team, I kind of think about it more as a, a business analysis and reporting team where you take some numbers and put some context behind them. You have a net message, right? And then if the person wants to actually see the numbers, they actually go back and look at the slide and say, okay, here are the numbers. So what should we be thinking about and measuring the efficacy of our program when it comes to cyber risk metrics?
2: Well, what's beautiful about the digital asset approach and cyber risk metrics is you can drill down into the data and you can drill up, right? So you can go from the organization to the business unit and you can ask questions like, well, which business units have the most inherent risk? Um, Which business units have the most data exfiltration risk? which business units have the most cloud risk, right, and then you can start drilling in and looking at, um, okay, well, how many of my systems are end of life? I mean, we still have 250 million customers that are on XP, right, for various reasons, but um, that's an issue because there's no patch management, and patch management is a fundamental aspect of a cybersecurity program, right? So, I think metrics are fascinating. I'm sorry to tell you, (laughs) and and and, you know, and I think this is the language of the board. It's like, give me, give me the KPIs, give me the metrics. You know, these people live and die by by numbers, and they should not be cybersecurity experts. And nor should we come at them with cyber jargon and say denial of service attack, man-in-the-middle, SQL injection, blah blah blah, because then they completely shut down, and you know, these are people who've been on the board for 15, 20 years that this is new. And what we should be doing is we should be talking to them in their language. And that's where metrics are so useful because you can talk to them about all the use cases that we just spoke about in terms of how much cyber insurance to buy, how much resources do we need, what does it look like, how do we compare to our peers. And we can get an idea both Quantitatively, from the financial exposure side, by using digital assets, and also qualitatively from the risk scoring based on digital assets to look across well, which digital assets were more inherently risky and why? And then, shouldn't we be monitoring those because they're inherently more risky than others? And the answer is yes, you should. They're your your prized assets, they're your crown jewels in some cases, and that makes sense. So, it's really important to sort of pull it all together from an internal perspective and be proactive about your risk management um, program.
1: So, so how do we calculate these metrics? How do you put them together? Is it possible to automate this process? And if so, how much should we expect to automate out of the, you know, this recording capability?
2: So business process automation is a concept that's been around for decades, right? And modeling cyber risk and automating the processes behind a cybersecurity risk management program are key to being able to have the visibility into the data. And so, what we've created is a, a cyber risk model that is actually something that the customer can work with in the front end, the GUI front end of our application, because no two companies are going to measure cyber risk the same, number one. And we've got lots of templates and examples. But As an example, you might want one business unit to have um, a data exfiltration calculation based upon a certain industry metric and another business unit to have a different one because they're so different in what they fundamentally do, right? So there's a lot of reasons why you'd want to do that. Um, And when you look at the digital asset, when you want to calculate the financial exposure, it's number of records because that's how they're going to pay the claim. It's the process interruption, and it's the regulatory loss that you may suffer. And then on the cyber risk scoring side, it's inherent versus residual. And how do you automate each individual's um, needs? So what we do is we provide dashboards, reports, and workflows that are role-based. So the CISO gets one, the board gets one, the compliance manager, the data privacy officer, the auditor, uh, the vendor, um, the regulator, um, the remediator, you name it, they get what they want. And then it's actionable because there's a workflow behind it. So if you're the business unit and a vulnerability comes up and you decide you want to accept risk, you can automatically accept risk with a justification so that when it comes up in a in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in someone's uh, conversation later, you can basically go back and say, oh, this is why um, George accepted the risk because he knows that this system is being decommissioned next week and it doesn't make any sense for us to spend, um, to do a three-week project on something that's being decommissioned in a week, right? And it's like, oh, of course it doesn't. You know, it's like, that's the kind of transparency we all need because, we need to be able to communicate what's going on so that when someone else is impacted on a different side of the organization, whether it be the data privacy person or the board or whoever, they're like, oh, I see what happened or I see what happened and we should have done something different or, or whatever, right? So by automating all those pieces of the puzzle together, the You know, the compliance manager has to work with frameworks. The data privacy officer has to work with the privacy regulations or the GDPR. Um, The CISO is spread across the board in terms of their roles and responsibilities and how many things they touch, not only risk management, but vulnerability management, incident management. Uh, They're working with the auditors. The auditors are doing their audit management piece. And you've got all these folks that have to see the data a certain way in order to get the information they need to know, oh, yes, this is what we should be doing next, or this is what I need to go talk to someone about because I'm, you know, collaborating with them on this, whether it be a PCI assessment or a um, a remediation effort or um, a board report. It could be anything, right? But it's not just one person who's doing all this. It's a team usually. Um,
1: You you, you talk about the board report. You know, how, how should we put these to use properly? right? I mean, because I'm, I'm not a fan of giving a, met, a lot of metrics to the board, right? I, just, I, I think the board wants to hear stories that they can relate to. And you need to mention, you know, speaking the language of the business, I think they you know, a language they understand. But also, you know, when you talk to finance, when you talk to risk, when you talk to, you know, the line of business folks, how do you use these properly in terms of uh, inherent and residual risk and, and things like that?
2: Well, I think you need to tell the board what they need to know. Like, So what does the board need to know? Well, first of all, if they need to know what their total exposure is and has it changed and why, right? Then they need to know how effective the program is and what, where there needs to be more resources or um, more attention paid. They need to know what the crown jewel assets of the business are. You get five board members in a room and ask them to write down the top five digital assets, you'll get 25 answers. It's amazing how many
1: companies don't even know what their top 50 applications are or their top 10 material risks are. It's amazing. Exactly. exactly.
2: And then you can answer a whole bunch of questions like the board, you know, in general, the protection of the asset, right? What is, what does that mean? That means that I am clear about how much risk there is. I'm clear about what programs are in place. I'm clear about how much money is being spent and where the possible pain points are going to be if I have a data breach. What are the crown jewel assets? What do they look like? How much risk do they carry? Do we have enough insurance that if something happens, we're sustainable? Um, those are the questions. They shouldn't have to go into the weeds and be looking at um, really detailed levels of information right. that the CISO would want to share with um, a remediator. That doesn't make any sense, but you want to keep it at at the, the, you want to be able to tell a story to the board. You want to walk in there and be able to have the metrics tell the story to the board. Okay. You know, we were, you know, on a scale of zero to five last year, we were 2.5% resilient. Our goal was to get 3.2% resilient. As a direct result, we put in place a data privacy um, program. We hired a new data privacy officer. Um, We, integrated in our risk management system with the ERM. So our cyber risk management and our enterprise risk management are now talking to each other. And we've put together a series of important metrics that we review each and every quarter with you so that you can understand how effective our program is and do, and then we can have conversations around pivoting it if necessary that would be appropriate for you to be involved in the conversation with us, right? All right, like, right. And, and that's kind of you've got to be able to tell a story or else they're going to just glaze Even if you gave them wonderful metrics, but you couldn't explain them.
1: Right. It's like, exactly. Right. That's true. That's not
2: very useful. Right.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think that's right on the money. And, you know, I see that the, you know, the conversations about cloud can continue to go on. And someone asked me the other day, you know, how secure do I feel? How, how confident do I feel that, you know, all of our information continues to be, I guess, you know, migrated over to the cloud in some respects, and I think about 40% of companies have their applications and infrastructure on-prem now, and that number is continually to decrease, right? So, it's more and more right. of, of this, you know, is getting to be moved off, off-prem. What does that mean in terms of cyber risk to a company? So, this
2: is very interesting because we, we're seeing a new role come out of the last year, something called the cloud CISO where these larger, more mature companies are actually hiring a CISO to be involved in the cloud security program. And one of the things that's astounding that I found out in the surveys um, that we did in the research was that most of the security folks are not involved in the selecting of the cloud service provider. It's the business. And this is definitely an area that could be immediately improved upon if you brought the CISO in because they know which questions to ask. They understand it's a shared responsibility model. They understand which roles they're supposed to play, which roles the cloud service provider is supposed to play, and they're pulling it together in a way that it's effective and, and, and it's going to work well. Um, this is only going to increase, like I said earlier, because we're seeing you know, this will go 80-20 in the next you know, five, ten years. Vendors will keep increasing, and the cloud has improved its security. This is another interesting point is that now they're offering things like key management and the ability to look at their log files and things like that. And in five years ago, that would have never happened. So there's a lot more transparency in terms of the cloud service provider. It has to get better still. But it's all going in the right direction. because so customers have put their foot down and said, "No, we can no longer just sign off on you know we accept all the risk when we don't understand what risk we're accepting is," which is what they were doing five years ago. So it's much different, um, and hopefully this will trickle down now to the less mature companies as well, because it's not rocket science what they're trying to do, but it is a learning experience, right? It's like another thing that you have to like wrap your head around and understand like, you know, what are the ways clouds are secured? What are the different types of cloud, public, private, hybrid? What are the different models, um, you know, infrastructure, platform, software? What are the native cloud and what do they look like? Um, what's the shared responsibility model? How does that work? What CVEs, this is a little deep, but what CVEs, common vulnerability exposures are associated with cloud technologies, um, and how do you protect yourselves against those. And that's what the cloud CISO is, is, is working on, and it's fascinating, um, and I'm very happy about it.
1: Okay, folks, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, the CEO of Cyber Innovative Technologies, Mrs. Ariel Evans. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Recorded future helps security teams make more confident decisions Faster RECORDED FUTURE's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from RECORDED FUTURE, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. RECORDED FUTURE integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task 7. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Synet. and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T. The rules of enterprise security have changed. Your employees work remotely. Their devices access corporate data in the cloud. Phishing and other threats are intensifying. Traditional perimeter-based security is no longer enough to keep your enterprise safe. You need a new approach that protects your organization from the outside in. Lookout Post Perimeter Security enables protection at the endpoint and establishes continuous conditional access to data based on risk so you can protect your mobile workforce against phishing and other new world threats. Now you can secure the post perimeter world. Visit Lookout.com forward slash Task Force 7 to learn more today.
0: account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation many companies think they're protected they believe using a password manager multi-factor authentication behavior-based technology password rotations or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com.
1: We're back with our special guest, the CEO of Cyber Innovative Technologies. This is Ariel Evans. So, lots of emerging technologies out there, Ariel. How do you see information changing, the information security space changing, as innovation just keeps rolling out uh, as regards to cybersecurity? It's a
2: great question, George. You know, I see this as the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's some really interesting things that are going to make cyber better and then there's some things that are going to definitely make it more challenging. Um, If we look at IoT as an example, um, a lot of times we see security is not baked in. Uh, Case in point with Milong, about a year and a half ago, we had one of the biggest IoT cyber breaches in the history um, associated with um, their particular uh, cameras that um, had IoT devices implanted in them. And the reason they're not Baking in the security is as much cheaper not to, right? So we're seeing, um, you know, okay, I can sell this for five, 50 cents versus $5. Um, this is not good for from a cyber perspective. Um, of course, cloud challenges that we talked about earlier, you know, um, now seeing cloud CISOs is wonderful. I think that's a step in the right direction. Understanding the shared responsibility model is definitely something that needs a lot more attention. Um, and... As customers start to move in this direction, we're going to see more and more transparency between the cloud service provider and the customer, which is great. When we get into quantum, that's a whole other matter. (laughs) Um, Basically, once quantum happens, we're going to see PKI infrastructures become obsolete. And so what we need to start to think about, if quantum is really coming in five to 10 years, is how do we replace those? How do we, what do we do in terms of that type of um, a security control? Um, So that's definitely going to be a challenge. With blockchain, I'm not impressed yet with any security solutions anyone's come out with. It's a lot of hype, frankly, and blockchain is more of a trust model. Um, My husband works at JPMorgan Chase, and he's the managing director of the innovation uh, group. And um, he deals with, all these innovative technologies, including blockchain, and I just don't see anything really revolutionary coming out of here. It's great for smart contracts and more of a business application, but not from a cyber control perspective. But on the other side of the coin, there's AI. And AI is going to be very interesting because we're seeing all kinds of um, different use cases around how can we replace the human component of the cybersecurity um, process, whether it be um, remediation, whether it be um, identification of certain types of assets, whether it be um, looking at it from a data cleansing perspective. There's all kinds kind of use cases around AI that are terrific, and we actually incorporate AI into our application today.
1: Now, that's a really good breakdown of all the emerging technologies that are out there, and it's sort of like a very quick and clean uh, analysis, right? I don't think there's a lot going on in, in in blockchain either. You know, I just don't see it. I don't think that you know the banks are really uh, are accepting it as much. I know there's some things. Not that Not right, from a cyber
2: uh, perspective, No,
1: no, no. I, I, I haven't. Seen it. And then, you know, uh, the artificial intelligence I get, was the main theme over at the RSA conference. I think, in, in, in terms of what kind of AI is being built in some of the security products out there. So that was also interesting. But I can't let you. Mm-hmm. I can't let you go without asking you about talent and. Now, the talent in the cybersecurity space is always a big topic of discussion. You know, you own your own cyber education services business. I mentioned it in the opening uh, in the in the, in the first segment. What type of courses do you offer and, and specifically, and why those courses?
2: So um, we started uh, Cyber Intelligence for You about a year and a half ago. Um, and one of the things that was a direct result of the research I did was really how do we how do we help the executives? And so we have a whole executive focus, executive cybersecurity program that allows executives to form an effective cybersecurity strategy using metrics. And of course the product automates all this. So no surprise, right? Um, That's our best seller and we pivot that course for other specific types of needs such as, well, I need to train my sales force in order to sell cybersecurity. Verizon is one of our biggest customers. Um, We have 2,000 people in a cohort, um, and what they're doing is they want to elevate the conversation in cyber, so they're taking parts of our executive program, but then we're customizing pieces directly for them so that this can be most effective. Um, From a tactical perspective, we're looking at um, offensive cybersecurity programs, but what we do is something that's very unique. We have a gamified approach. Um, This was built by partners of mine. I actually can't take credit for this. Um, former NSA security elite that have a whole application that's over a hundred challenges that the students go through everything from dysforensics forensics to defensive hunting um, over a period of several months um, in order to become an offensive cybersecurity professional and we so need these people we're two million short here and we've got to do something to to bridge that gap and last but not least we have um, what we call intensive courses where, specialized offerings for cloud mobile vendor, which is a one-day foundational course and then a two-day advanced course that allows the organization to get clear on, well, how do I do a cloud program? How do I do a vendor program? How do I do a mobile program, right? Um, And they're online and they're in person and we hire subject matter experts to come in and teach pieces that are um, very important. These are not just academics. Um, They're boots on the ground people who really have a clear understanding of what these things really are. Um, And we offer this to universities, we offer this to um, individuals, and we offer it to organizations and customers include Rutgers University, AM Best, Kronos, CrowdStrike, Bluoyant, a number of different types of organizations.
1: I was just gonna ask you, can anybody take these classes? Is it open to anyone?
2: Yes, it actually is. Um, if you're an individual and you want to take a class, you can sign up individually and you can um, take the class and get a certification.
1: So you got a big day coming up on May 29th. Uh, you're launching know, mm-hmm. your software company. You have a big day on the 29th. Tell us what that's all about. How does that tie into your educational services business and what does the software do?
2: So on May 29th, Bank of America is hosting a book launch for me, um, and we are going to be um, discussing all the different use cases that allow you to have um, increase your cyber resiliency and how do we look at cyber risk from the business perspective. And um, it's very exciting because we're having CEOs, CROs, COOs, CISOs attend, and um, it's a breakfast and. Uh, At the same time, we're going to launch our product. So our product, although we have paying customers already, um, hasn't been officially launched yet, and we're going to do a whole press release and, um, you know, kick off thing with that as well because the book, the product, and the educational service piece all are intertwined. Um, Everything I talk about has to do with cyber risk. This is my area of expertise, and what we allow you to do is to really see um, what... You really need to know to be able to look at cyber from a business perspective. How do we, you know, when a CISO comes into a boardroom with a list of 300 vulnerabilities and says, that's my cyber program, my response is, no, it's not. It's a list of 300 vulnerabilities. Um, You know, what we want them to understand is that we need to talk in the language of the board. The board has a fiduciary duty to protect the business assets, and they can only do that with the right kind of metrics to make the right kind of business decisions.
1: Well, this is great. Congratulations on all the success. I mean, this is really awesome. I really appreciate you coming on the show with us. I know you're busy. Obviously you got a lot going on, you know, I hope to have you back often.
2: Um, Be happy to do that. And I I thank you for inviting me. This has been
1: a pleasure. All right, folks, it's time to bounce up out of here once again, but before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the cybersecurity hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity, breaking news, at www.cshub.com. That's the cybersecurity hub at csHub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, Please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.